Welcome to episode three of the Lotox Life podcast. You're with Alex Stewart. Now, today's show, I am introducing you to an incredible woman. Her name is Dr. Fiona Kerr. And I really don't know how she fits as much into her brain as she does, but she does. And guess what? Her life's study is the brain. And today I have her specifically talking with me about the brain and sleep. Now, sleep is a really interesting one, and it's actually the topic of this month's uh, Lotox Life Club. So if you wanted to have a look at what the club was all about, just head to my website, lotoxlife.com, and you'll be able to click on there and get all the information you need. And we have five interviews this month in there on sleep. Uh, but this one I wanted to make available to everyone because I really believe, um, A, you know, I wanted to give everybody a little sneak peek into these um, very topic-focused interviews, but also uh, Dr. Kerr has a real gift for making us not feel stressed about what we can't achieve Um, and really, uh, as I so passionately believe, making us focus on what we can achieve. So we're bringing things like naps into this discussion. We're bringing um, the idea of, you know, how to get over those first kind of few months when you've got a newborn into the discussion. We're bringing really stressful periods of work into the discussion so that everybody feels like there is something you can do to improve the quality of your sleep, um, to demystify the sleep you're currently getting, work out whether it's giving you what you need. Um, She talks about our brain's filing systems, how we can actually grow new brain cells even as adults. And I mean, you know, we have packed a lot into this chat. So I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And I would love for you to check out the show notes, of course, which you can always access for any of the episodes at lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast. So I'll leave you there. I hope you enjoy the chat. Please, if there's anything you want to discuss, find me on Twitter or Instagram, use that hashtag lotoxlife and let's have a chat afterwards. But for now, we're going to launch straight into this chat with Fiona. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. And hello, Dr. Fiona Kerr. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It is so wonderful to have you here for a chat. Um, so the people who might not know who you are, let me just do a little bit of a um, little bit of a sell. So Dr. Kerr joins us from the University of Adelaide. She is, and just so that I get this right, I'm reading it. I'm going to be b- brutally honest. A neural and systems complexity specialist. Uh, and newly started co-founder and director of Human E. So I look forward to hearing what that's about. Um, But what Fiona works in is actually just a a multifaceted passion for the brain, how it works, but also um, how we can grow a new brain or new bits of brain at any age. This is something we can all benefit from in today's chat. And um, specifically uh, through positive interactions with fellow human beings. So it's really beautiful. But today we're here to talk the brain and sleep, which is another one of your passions. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this uh, new human E? Sure. Um, I'm in partnership with a lovely young um, spunky doctor called uh, Dr. Jordan Nguyen, which um, some people will have seen, various people will have seen. So Jordan is a, he's a biomedical engineer and robotics expert. 
And we've done tag teams a few times on robot brains versus human brains and uh, how do they sort of work. And we used to have discussions. We do a lot of – we ended up in a lot of the same sorts of um, conferences and we would have these wonderful talks about, yes, you can have robot nurses. Well, you can, but only in certain circumstances. You know, once someone's stressed or upset, no, you can't because you actually need humans. You need retinal eye lock. You need touch and C fibres. You need all these things that, that create wonderful chemicals in the body that only another human can create. And we have a lot of assumptions around uh, the interaction of technology and humans. So after um, a few months, we realised that although we're looking at different angles, we have a very, very... Um, aligned core, which is we need to get this right. We need to understand how technology interacts with human beings, whether it's a cyborg, a flat screen, a, you know, whatever it is, virtual reality, because we don't know. We make lots and lots of assumptions and we're gaily going off doing things like having robotic nurses, deciding we're going to have humanoids sitting next to people with dementia, even using a flat screen when we don't know each other over interviews. There are things that don't work. <laughs> so we are um, looking at the, uh, the research, actually doing the, the really hard yard research around, you know, what does your body and your brain do when you interact with a piece of technology? And what are the advantages? Because, of course, you get some wonderful ones. But what are the things to be aware of? So it's, it's making sure that going forward in the technological age that we get it right, that we, we know what we're doing, that we don't either get pushed by companies who just need profit or by ignorance. Um, we, we have a really good understanding. So we're advising, we've already got our first client, we're advising on, um, yeah, on interaction. Uh, we're doing a lot of really good research on the stuff people actually aren't looking at. Um, and, yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating area. Everyone loves so what exactly happens when I talk to a robot and what can it do? So, yeah, it's a really interesting area. But it's it's very important. I'm doing a, a project with the medical um, school, um, or health sciences, on the neurophysiological effect of touch and eye gaze on healing. And so it's a similar sort of thing. You know, when do you need a human nurse or doctor and when can you have something which is a piece of technology? Um, yeah, so again, it's about fostering a really healthy body and brain and about getting you into that position where the, the human being is going to flourish in that circumstance. Um, and so... Yeah, and that kind of it really well brings us around to sleep because uh, one of the aspects then is neurogenesis. Um, you mentioned growing new brain. So one of the areas, probably the major area that I love, is that we can build new brain at any age, all of us. And there is a number of ways, uh, but one of the ways is to sleep. Whether it's napping or sleeping, it is an absolutely critical method of uh, being creative, of um, also doing a lot of other things, which we'll talk about over the half an hour. Um, but it's it's an, uh, got an amazing capability um, to do a number of things for both your body and your brain. So oh, I'm so passionate about sleep. And I think it's one of those areas of health that um, has very much been a mess for me. And when you <laughs> conquer a mess, 
I'm a big believer in it becoming a message to help others do the same, especially when it comes to sleep and the epidemic lack of sleep that we experience in our culture today. So uh, you mentioned just a couple of things briefly there, and we're all told we need to sleep more and we should be looking at seven to eight hours a night um, and that it's very important to our health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can you help us understand just how crucial the importance of sleep is with the help of your cat there? in I had a meeting two hours ago and the person sailed off back up home and rang me from an hour away saying I've got your cat in the car (laughs) so that was great um so she's very friendly um yes I can so one of the main things around um around understanding why sleep is so important is the the role that it plays at different periods of the night so Yes, we've been told that we, we should average six to seven hours. Uh, some people talk about eight, nine, the more the better. That's not actually true. There's some really interesting work on the fact that if you have more, if you regularly have more than sort of eight to nine, you um, the, the sort of bell-shaped peak of living longer and more healthily goes starts to go down again. Ooh, so my husband's not going to be happy about that sleep. one. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. We have an epidemic of not enough, and we will probably, you know, we can talk about why, what, what disturbs us, and a lot of it is things like electrical light, television. So why do you get distracted at night and watch those things, and and and, uh, and that gets into willpower, and we'll get into that. So six to seven hours. If we look at why do you need the six to seven hours, we'll break it down to what happens. In the first, I, I, I guess I call it work and play for your body. So the first few hours. Most of what you do is you you maintain the body. So your brain is hard at work on maintenance. And that includes organizing what's happening in the rest of the body and also in the brain. So the especially the first oh, probably up to four hours of if you're going to have six or seven at least, has very little REM sleep and mostly the, the cycles of sleep that allow for Things like uh, sticky plaque to be removed off your um, off your uh, different parts of the neurons, and it keeps uh, all sorts of electrical stimuli and and you know oxygen bearing capacity um, up to scratch. So it really does clean it up to make sure that it maintains and works well. So you just said sticky plaque. How does the sticky plaque get there in the first place? Oh, we we make it. Um, it's it's a byproduct, if you like, of, uh, and that's a whole other discussion. But it's a byproduct of a number of things. We know some of them. We don't know others. Um, some of that plaque is the type of plaque that builds up when you get various forms of um, of dementia, and and those kinds of um, issues that you get later. But what we need is the capacity for things called glial cells to actually come along and clean it off and they can work really well um, overnight. They That's one of the things they're tasked to do. It's something we can't times. do while we're awake? No, we don't do it while we're awake. Um, so that, that really is a major task of early sleep. So it's maintenance of body and brain. Then we get into... We get into the the filing and then the play. So we get into something called pre-REM2 after we've done the maintenance. And what that does, it's it's fascinating in that what it does is it files away the information and the learning or to create it as learning of the information that you've, you've got during the day. 
So it starts to say, well, this bit is in this file, this bit is in that file, this bit is in this file. And so it embeds it into the different parts of your brain. And what that allows you to do is we is really to, to store it in the neocortex because otherwise what you get is a discussion on memory would take us into all different lengths of time that we take to embed information across our brain um, in the process of memory. Right from the very first time you look at something and it's only a few seconds or 20 seconds, I think, and then it's overwritten. If you don't use it, the neurons used for something else. Um, right down to being able to hold it, we're sort of shuffling it from the, the inbox of the real working memory to short-term memory to mid-term memory to, you know, neocortical storage. And, and so the filing takes information and puts it into the filing system. So now you've got a cleaner brain and stuff's filed away. Then you get into REM. So REM sleep allows you to play, allows your brain to play. So that's when it almost, if you like, takes the bits of jigsaws that you've built up and it starts to make the pattern. It starts to build the jigsaw. So there's a number of things that happen in REM. The pieces can get taken out. It's, it's called an abstractive state. So you're, it's almost like your brain, the little bits of your brain loosen off and they can move around and, and make new connections. Well, I know this is filed here and that's filed there, but what if we join this bit and that bit? Oh, look at that. It's brand new. So all that creative stuff um, and that extrapolation, that's much more up that that end of sleep. So what? How long have we been asleep at this stage? About five hours? Yeah, yeah, um, probably almost six. But yes, um, so for most people, it was between six and eight, uh, or six and seven. So some people would probably be five to seven. But you definitely have to be in that, you know, sixth to seventh hour of sleep. And what you get then is you get this fantastic uh, capability. That's where you get the creative um, ideas. That's where you wake up in the morning and go, "Yep, that's what I need to do." And it's where you get your unusual ideas as well, because one of the things that allows us to create these joined up new ideas is the the part of your brain that's at the front, so the frontal cortex, that's the bit that sort of cooks the latest. It, it only forms in your 20s, basically, um, and a bit later for, <laughs> for boys, um, only because it's delayed a little bit by testosterone kind of midway. Um, and that's the area that has the, if you like, it's the policeman, it's the rules and regulations. You can't walk through a wall, you can't um, fly, whereas in a dream, yes, you can. And it's because the frontal cortex has been powered down. So it's not putting those rules onto what your brain's building. And it's why you can do all sorts of really interesting, inventive things in dreams that are impossible. And if you didn't do that, if you didn't have that frontal cortex kind of it's not looking, then you wouldn't be able to do these really unusual new sort of connections, which come up quite often with really interesting inventions or, or you know, way out there ways of thinking. So when we're in REM, we're actually taking in more oxygen than when we're awake because our brain's really, really busy. And that's fascinating because... It's been proven, obviously, that just before the sunrise is when oxygen is at its highest form in the in in the air we breathe. So let's just say back in the old days when we were basically campers. Um, yes. Thank God we're not now. Sorry, that's just a personal <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, then that actually fits 
beautifully with what you've just said about what that pre-sunrise sleep um, yeah. is. Well, it does. And now you're getting into, you're, you're starting to get into the other bit of why I'm a systems and neural complexity specialist, because you're bringing in the system that you live in. And you're absolutely right. So another part of that system then is because because the sun had gone down and we didn't have electric light or television, of course, by then we'd have been in our six to eight hours of, of sleep. Whereas now, very often, if you go to bed at one or two, you're not. So you miss that, and we're inside anyway, and and especially if you're in kind of a hotel room with, you know, air conditioning and grogginess anyway. Um, so there's all sorts of things to do with um, positive ions and those things too. Another fascinating thing about the later sleep, though, is it even affects or is affected by epigenetics. So when you – in those later hours of sleep – what happens is the the, RD, the RNA and the DNA actually act differently um, and it increases the capability. The, the gene expression for memory and for learning is stronger in the later hours of sleep. So what that means is that it kind of turns around your body's capacity, even at that level, um, to it, it has an effect on the of adult neural stem cells. So it increases neurogenesis. You can, you're building a new brain. And you're also being able to move around stuff. You're you're embedding it differently because it's more plastic, and your learning has increased uh, because you've not only got this filed information which is now being held by the neocortex, but it's loosened off and you can throw it around a bit and you can see what new patterns emerge. Wow! So, so for, that's the sleep's critical. Okay, so I'm just going to bring in a group of people that I work with a lot, which is parents of small people. Um, <laughs> not necessarily just newborns, but just lots of little kids in, in our community. And um, quite often they will get woken up. It's just a reality in the night or in the morning. How does all of this affect them? And do we have to accept it as a time in our lives and we do more brain building a bit later on or what can we do? Oh, you still um, – there's – there's some work on that type of disruption and there's definitely some people who are better at being disrupted than others as well. Um, so I'm a catnapper, so I've always been able to do that and we'll get on to naps because they're really important. Um, so what used to happen with me was I had a lovely second child who fed every two hours for, for nearly two years and so what I was very good at, he only wanted 10 minutes. So what I was really, really good at was just the 10 minutes, put him back, straight back to sleep. And and what goes to your question is how we can almost train our brains to go more quickly into certain cycles. So if we skip across into looking at meditation, there's two or three types, there's three major types of meditation, but one of the things that you can do, one of the types of meditation, increases the capability for us to more rapidly dip down into that, you know, that, that um, REM sleep. And it's why a yogi can kind of go into that stage. You can give them something complex and then they're almost zoomed straight down into there and then they can come out because they've, they've gone into that kind of extrapolation, abstractive process. And uh, and it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, I was feeling a bit blah today and I thought, oh, God, I've got to interview Dr. Fiona Kerr tonight. <laughs> you know, I've really got to be on game. And so I meditated for 20 minutes. And, um, okay. and look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> And when you start the 
that so so that leads into shall we lead into naps then because that's a really good way to start to go into naps so one of the things that's interesting about um about taking that sort of time out that mental time out is that the time you take becomes really important so so up front i'll say that um, we we haven't got it right like um, like a lot of Asian and European countries. We don't nap in the middle of the day, and we should. So we are built absolutely built for two sleeps a day. We have a, a homeostatic curve and or, or rhythm basically, and we have a circadian rhythm. And you know one does this and one does that. So they they're pulling us the wrong way for most of the day and evening, but around the middle of the day they align. And that's when we should have a sleep. And it does a number of things. So so really, um, I guess, quickly, if we look at naps, we can have short naps and long naps. And if you are you a cat napper? I can definitely nap. Yeah, definitely. And how long yeah. do you nap? Um, if I've got a busy normal work day, I'm not going to take more than 20 minutes. Yep. Okay. So 20 minutes is a really good uh, nap time. <laughs> yes, but they do different things. If you, a short nap does quite a different thing in your brain than a long nap, and the in between nap don't go there. <laughs> so why the in between nap is the one yes. where you're just groggy for the rest of the yes, day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about um, we talked about the frontal cortex powering down when you go into you know the REM sort of cycle, um, but if we have a a nap that well, so up to about 25 minutes, you don't get into that. You're in those kind of peripheral first stages of, of sleep. You don't hit deep sleep. So what that does is it's like a it's like a you know a lovely shower for your brain. It 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 if you if we think about it again as the the really short term memory is like your inbox, and then there's the um, that's the real working memory. Sorry, and then there's short, medium, and long. So the the very beginning of the inbox, what the 20 minute nap allows you to do is kind of empty it because then you can put more stuff in so you can pop that into the the short-term memory and if we're going to use it or embed it then great then it will go into sort of a longer memory so that 20 minutes allows a number of things so a short nap um, allows you to be more alert and more attentive of various things it allows a number of capacities to to increase again you can have better qualitative and quantitative capability but what it doesn't go into is the the creative aspect of the long nap but nevertheless it's a really good thing to do so it it really does assist the whole body and brain to get back on task to get sharper if you were to keep having 10 minute naps the other the downside of that just to let you know is every now and then there's some types of work where people will just keep taking little tiny naps because they have to keep going. And the problem with that is if you're only taking the, the 10, 15 minutes, you have this feeling of alertness. I'm fine. I'm okay. And if you keep doing that and don't let yourself go into the longer when you need it, then you will feel like you're doing very well, but you're, you have a really impaired sense of judgment. Right. So you cannot just keep having little naps. Um, so the 20-minute the nap is fantastic for alertness and for um, that general well-being, and everyone should do that because, it, as I said, it allows you to sort of fill back up on, on information and capability. Question, do we get a benefit if we can't successfully fall asleep for that 20 minutes? Well, we're still resting 
and you get better at it. Yeah. It's almost like a practice thing. Um, it, it gets, and that partly gets into willpower, which we'll, we'll talk about too. But, um, but yes, you still do because even if you're shutting your eyes, what I say sometimes to people is, if you've got no other capability, then just take five to ten minutes to shut your eyes, mm. because visual stimuli, what we take in through our eyes, is more than fifty percent of the stimulation of the brain. So as soon as you close your eyes, you are massively cutting what we have to cope with, thousands and thousands of, of pieces of information constantly. The first thing I thought of there was, you know, the, the classic woman, uh, 10 tabs open on the computer, three different windows, you know, a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Um, and you, what you notice is sometimes when I'm talking about this and I've got, a, say, a smaller group of masterclass, something like this, and I make them close their eyes for two minutes. And when they do, at first they're kind of, and then every one of them at some time, sort of close to that two minutes, gets this sort of chemical, (laughs) because you really do um, get some really nice chemicals that start to to come into, you know, calming you down. Um, So if nothing else, yes, it does. So the 20-minute nap, and you you do get good at that. Uh, I'm absolutely, I'm able to, well, I still do set an alarm usually just because then I can completely relax. I do too, um, exactly. Yes, mm. yeah. So some people, they just, they can do it, they know it. They can do it in 20 minutes, they'll wake up at exactly 20 minutes. And I probably normally do wake up, um, but just so that I'm not going to hover in what's called hypervigilance, wondering about it, um, I set my alarm. So the death zone is 30 to 60 minutes. So when I talk to people about, no, I hate napping, awful, that's normally it. So your, your brain is saying, okay, you're going to go into long REM sleep. I'm going to start shutting down the frontal cortex. So when someone wakes you in that and your brain's rushing to put blood back into this front and you've got that really, really foggy, fuzzy, headachey feeling and people say, oh, I hate napping. So you either do the, the sort of 20, 25 minutes or you do the hour, hour and a half. So they do different things. The front bit has made you alert and perky and, and off you can go with things. If you need to be problem solving in complex problems or you need to be creative, do the hour to hour and a half. Ooh, okay. Because what that does is it start, it, it allows you to have one of those um, sort of long cycle, you know, REM episodes almost. So what's uh, fascinating is some of the latest information and research around giving people an activity to do. So if I was to give you something to do that was quite complex, I could test you, give you something to do, and then I get you to sleep for half an hour and come back and I give you uh, a harder or more information in another kind of complex project. You'll probably do as well as you did the first time. If I was to get you to go and sleep for an hour and a half and come back and give you that kind of similar level of complexity, more information, you will do better. Not only will you do better um, than the people who've only slept for 20 minutes, you'll do better than the you did um, the first time, so before you had your sleep. Because it does two things. When we have a long nap, we increase retention of information, we increase speed of retention of information. So your brain can work faster at trying to find those patterns and trying to um, 
build um, a capacity for you to deal with that type of specific information and um, an activity and problem. Um, it's, it can be really hard, though, trusting it sometimes. So for me, for an example, probably three, four months ago, I had a, oh, no, it was it was June the 31st, or have we got 31 days in June? Anyway, it was the last day in June. <laughs> and and I had a, a big project to deliver to the state government. And I'd kind of lost my way. I was obviously trying to put too much in. I had this deadline, so I was in you know, a cortisol. I was all stressed. Uh, and... And I made myself have a little sleep because I'd gone down a rabbit hole with information and I'm thinking, this is crazy. If I do this at this level, I'm never going to get it done. And I made and I slept 20 minutes and I woke up and I was going back off to do the same thing. And I thought, you know, Fiona, what you have to do. So my logic was telling me you need the hour and a half. And my stress was telling me, no, 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 you need to get on with it. You need to get on with it. And I made myself have that hour and a half. And it was incredible. I woke up and I thought, hang on. It's this angle I need to take. And I've written that three years ago, and that bit's really relevant. If I take that in and put it here, and if I don't go down that bit, but I actually cross that and that and that, then that's going to really – that was all in this. So I, once I trusted it, it, it happened. Yeah. And so it is a really, really different process once you get into that long-term nap. Oh, sorry, that yeah, that's right, that long-term nap, because it, it does all of that extrapolative capacity um, work for you. So the ideal for us to, um, I guess, for us to uh, educate or at work would be to to exercise first because then you've got all that lovely oxygen, you've got BDNF, which grows new brain, you're all ready, you've got wonderful chemicals, and then you uh, you learn, and then you sleep, and then you, then you apply learning. Okay, so the challenge is, though, how do we, let's say, go to an employer and state our case for this or how do we as mums with maybe three kids under five, you know, with a business try and um, integrate some of this into our life? Is it a case of just being firm and prioritising and saying I work best this way and doing a trial? Yeah, the three mums under five, you all nap, all four of you. Three mums, three kids. Yeah, so all four of you nap. Employers are interesting. So there's a number of employers that I've talked to now around what that looks like, what napping looks like, because I also talk about the neuroscience of space, as in what physical space does in terms of how you think and how you ideate. And one of the things is spaces for sleeping. Mm. So if you've got something like the Google, you know, they've got, they've got their um, sleep pods, and it's almost a case of if you haven't had your half an hour by 2.30 and you're ratty, they're going, why not? Um, but there's a lot of organisations that understand it's important, haven't got a lot of room or a lot of money, and there's some very interesting new um, ways of allowing you to sleep from sort of boxes under your desk uh, and sleep rooms right up to these amazing sort of soft diving helmet things you can put on, which I've seen uh, especially in a couple of places in Asia, and and they're fantastic. They, they literally look like a soft diving helmet. You put it on, you then, it, so it shuts out uh, what you can see, it shuts out what you can hear, and you pop your head down for 20 minutes and you have this really, you know, really nice nap. Um, so employers that that get it, they they are buying into it. Yeah. If your employer doesn't, I would still 
get try and get into the habit of having a 20-minute nap. Um, either you go somewhere or if you've got an office, you can do it under your desk or wherever it is because it's it's just really, really good for you. Um, we should all be doing it. I'm horrified at the fact that we're taking things like naps out of, pre, you know, early school and those sorts of things. It's, it's totally the wrong way to go. Mm. We're stopping them learning, not starting them learning or allowing or, you know, helping them learn. We do, yes, that's that stuff about getting the information right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. And I don't doubt for a second that with a bit more time we'll come full circle on a lot of this. Yes, yes. It's just, you know, waiting, isn't it, when you know it's right. Yeah. Watching large systems say, no, no, we can cut that out and be more efficient. Well, actually, no, you can't. (laughs) You're an awful lot more efficient. And as a boss, what what I had to... um, I guess get faith in was if I had a deadline, then myself and my group would be much better at okay. We need to we need to back off this week. We either go, we go for a walk, we go for a nap, we listen to music, we daydream. See, daydreaming is a similar part of the brain. So, daydreaming is almost the uh, I guess the normal set point of your brain if you're not tasking it. So in a similar way, if you're sitting here and you're, you've got a, a problem and you've got a deadline, up goes your cortisol, up go all sorts of things to do with, um, well, you know, corticosteroids, all sorts of things start to pump into your body because you're really stressed, which minimises the capacity for creative thought and even for getting hold of the information that's already sitting in your mid- and long-term memory. So you, you're almost, you're, you're worse at your normal thinking, never mind new thinking. Very and interesting. Yeah. So the Industrial <laughs> Revolution has kind of shot us in the foot in terms of um, creativity. Oh, yes, very much. Which is kind of handy to the average multinational <laughs> employer in some respects, but in other respects it's really detrimental to that beautiful evolution of continuing to yes. discover how we can do things better. Yes, and the, the companies that are creative, and there's fantastic ones, they are really good at allowing people to to daydream, to basically to mentally, you know, come in and out. Because what they're doing, what you're doing is if you're really concentrating on the task, you use the parts of your brain that are very task-based and you have a different type of, of structure of thinking that you're bringing to bear. Whereas even if you just kind of look up and look out the window for a minute, and how often do you do that and then you think, ah, that's right. And it's because just for that little bit of time, what you've allowed is those all those wonderful <laughs> neurons to go click and maybe move a little bit, and and it can it changes it. It goes into what's called abstractive mode. Yeah, which is that that really lovely, much more mobile mode for for your brain. That's so interesting because now instead of looking out the window, what do we do? Yes. And so we're actually filling it up with more garbage that we find even harder to organise our thoughts. Yeah, and the other thing, yes, you're right, and the other thing that these things do is is they keep us in that um, different kind of attention mode. So when I see PhD students and those sorts of things, they would say have a break every 30 or 25 minutes, you know, walk around the block, and guys say, oh, no, that's okay, we're having a break because we go on to eBay or we go on to Google. No. You're taking in more information instead of getting it out. Yeah. 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 So do something. Even if you read a, a fiction book, 
that's quite different again. So, yeah, it's a really interesting area. So that kind of brings us to the question of what's hindering our sleep today. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, well, we talked. We did talk about the television and the, uh, you know, the um, the electric light. We've got them and we're stuck with them. So one of the things to think about is what's close to your face. So the blue screen, the uh, iPad, those sorts of things which have blue light, they interrupt uh, melatonin. So for at least half an hour before you go to sleep, don't have backlit blue screen screens near your face because it's directly impacting the capacity for your brain to be shifting into tired mode. Yeah. To an extent, a television far, far away is, is much better. It's just that that then brings in that whole willpower thing of you get to the stage. People get to the stage where they're so weary. I don't know if you do. I know I do it sometimes, that you just sit there. Yeah. And especially if you've been really busy, what you want is to turn your brain off and just be kind of entertained. Yeah. So you'll sit there and then what you'll do is you'll say, oh, I feel a bit nibbly. So so you also will get up and have something and it's always high carbohydrate because once your body's saying, I'm tired, I should be going to sleep, but now I'm distracted, then it says, then your leptin increases, which is a chemical in your body that then makes you crave carbohydrates because you actually need sleep. So its alternative is to stuff you with carbohydrates. So that's when you get the chocolate or the chips or those sorts of things and you sit there at night. And that, that's a cycle that feeds itself because you then get entertained and we have things called um, uh, what novelty detectors. So you get your, your brain gets interested and engaged and we completely stop uh, wanting to do what we need to do, which is to go to sleep. So we have to get, in, in order to stop that, you have to do something like, you know, have a timer at 11 o'clock that just shuts off your television power or something like that. And then when it happens and you've only got five minutes of the program left, the willpower it takes not to turn that back on is huge. Mm. <laughs> so that gets us into willpower. One of the issues we've got is, is willpower is like a muscle. And it's, it's a very real thing. The more you use it, the better you get. And willpower has a fascinating effect on your brain and on your capacity to make good um, judgment kind of decisions. So the higher, if I was to get you, are you right-handed or left-handed? Left. So if I was to get you for two weeks to use your right hand for everything, you'd hate it. Your brain would hate it. And because our brain loves that kind of homeostatic, I don't want to have to build something new and do something else because I've got all these habits keyed in and I know what I'm doing. So every time you go to use your right hand, it's saying, no, let me use your left hand. But you, you stop and you override that and you push it to make it do something it doesn't want to do. If I was to then test you in a complex problem after two weeks, you would be better. Wow. So, so like swapping from operating system to operating system back and forth with our tech is also a similar thing, like a good thing to do rather than always stay with the same. But that gets into novelty, which is a different thing. Okay. Um, well, I'll stay on track with you then. So the right-handed, <laughs> yeah, all good. Uh, a little bit the same, um, but it can be different. So so what's really interesting about willpower then is the 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 more you exercise it, the better you get at it, the better the brain is at then solving complex problems and taking on board the things that it knows it has to do. So um, we also need 
quite a lot of glucose and oxygen to make good decisions. And why does willpower come in there? Well, one of the interesting things about, say, dieting is we've got this terrible catch-22 of you need glucose to, to get willpower working so you actually need to eat in order to not eat <laughs> because it's why it's one of the reasons why diets don't work you know if you starve yourself then you haven't got the glucose to feed the capability for your brain to make that really good solid decision yeah so just eat and, the banana after your workout yeah. kind of thing yeah exactly yeah. Mm. so so why is that important it's important because we we have a society that's now very much built on distraction and because we have so much in the way of cognitive load with what we do, it's not physical load because because physical load's another discussion. But physical load is you know we have we, we're built to actually move. So we've we, as a as a, a human being as an animal, we're built to move an average of twenty kilometres a day in the fresh air, making complex decisions about an emergent life process as we go. And instead, what we do is we sit there, which is the worst thing to do, you know, in almost pre-diabetic states with all sorts of things happening in our bodies because we're not doing the movement and the oxygen and the BDNF and uh, all that stuff. And and then we so our, and we're really, really putting lots of information and stimuli into our brains. We have complex problems to solve. We get really full up and, and quite sort of cognitively overloaded. So then what we want to do is we want to be distracted afterwards. And the best kind of distraction, people that are really good at this, have the, the lovely kind of, you know, tinkly quiet bedroom where at a certain time of night, that's it. You go in there, you can you can read a book or you can listen to your music or you can do what you like. You can have your lovely smells because smell is really important for the brain. It, it Smell short circuits a number of pathways and goes straight into certain areas of your brain. So that's why it also brings back really amazing memories really fast. I've got a little bottle of essential oil here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and it does. It has wonderful effects. Yeah, I always have a little sniff after a, a nap. Yes, and it perks you up. Mm. Yep. And another thing that... Um, that that's really useful for is is cueing. So one of the ways, if you are one of these people that is finding it really hard to get to sleep, there's a number of things that that you can do. So one of them is to is to get again, you build a new habit, and and it takes what ten twelve weeks actually. Just like a newborn, really, if you think about it. Yes, yes. So you've got, and if you have certain type of music that calms you down. I always have rain sounds. That's my cue. So when I'm I'm going to sleep, then there's a certain smell uh, to do with lavender and rain sounds. And I had to get used to sleeping. I was a terrible sleeper. I was one of those people that um, I could go to sleep quickly, but after about uh, probably in four hours, so almost like my brain's done the, okay, now I've done the cleaning. Um, now there's all this stuff I'm about to file and oh my god look at all these things you haven't done look at all this stuff that you should know and that's it you know off it goes and there's all this ah so that was it I just didn't sleep well and I would do the wake up and do lists thing and one of the problems with that is is what you're doing is creating a habit of having to put the light on and do lists um, which is almost you know counteracting <laughs> what you're trying to do uh, so I had to learn to cue myself, and it probably took um, it probably took two years to be able to cue myself to go back to sleep. 
So I, I cue with rain and, uh, with as I said, with, with a lavender spray. But when I wake up in the middle of the night, then I, I will have a couple of ways of getting back to sleep. Now, how I can get comfy with pillows, or if I really need to, if I can't do that, then I'll, I'll do something like a, an affirmation meditation sort of in my ears <laughs> and where I float off and bird sounds and those sorts of things. And they calm me and then, oh, that's it, I'll go back to sleep. But I've just learned, no, it's better to just rest and then you'll fall back off. But if you get stressed about the fact that you're not sleeping or stressed about the fact that you have to write all this stuff down, then that can... You know, increase cortisol, that cortisol receptors off you go, and and it's counterproductive. That's great because, well, it's not so great, but what's great <laughs> about it is is that, you know, if someone such as yourself who literally works in the field of brain and rehabilitating and growing and um, uh, improving our brains admits to saying I was a crap sleeper and it was a two-year journey to become a good sleeper, mm. Some people, you know, this modern age, you know, if there isn't a pill for us to make it fabulous in a week, yeah. that can just really upset us. And we go, well, I'm not even going to try. But yes. what do you suggest to people who think, God, two years, who's got two years? Like, do we baby step it and chunk it down and say, what does that look like as a first step? As a Yeah, and I got better. Um, well, if we're really telling tales now, the first thing I had to do was pop, stop using temazepam if I just really thought, oh, my God, I can't get any sleep. I had a job where I travelled uh, all week um, and I was away from Adelaide all week and it was really high pressure from 8 in the morning to about 10 at night with the same group of guys. It was a really full-on job. And, um, yeah, and in the end, everyone everyone took temazepam. <laughs> which was really awful. Um, yeah, so even in the first three months, I, well, I went cold turkey with the tamazepam and I had to find ways. So my, it was almost like my brain said, okay, that's it. You're going to really have to deal with this. <laughs> so the first thing was the getting the really nice sound and just making myself feel comfortable. And what I had to tell myself was, was this is going to take a while, but right from the start, it's going to be better for you. And even if, and it's okay if you can't sleep all the way through. And sometimes I'd still really worry about it. But as I got better, and the first thing was I got better just at relaxing about the fact that I would wake up. Yeah. Um, and then, so I already slept. Uh, the quality of sleep I got was better. And one of the things that happens is when you, if you take any forms of drugs, they do different things, but many of the types of drugs block some of the types of um, creative abstraction and they block some of the types of uh, embedding, um, cortico, uh, sorry, um, neural embedding of information. So you can be sleeping what you think is sleeping eight hours and not actually embedding or taking in a lot of information. Mm. So it's not doing what it should be doing. It's actually better to get you know, less but allow the the body and the brain to be doing what it's supposed to be doing and then you you kind of yeah you get better um over time mm. if we get an hour and a half nap scenario in the day does that afford us less sleep in the night it shouldn't uh because we do need both but but that's a good point in that when do you do it so if you want your hour and a half you don't do it too late because you will you will um, disturb the sleep cycle. So when I said there was a homeostatic and, a, and a, um, a circadian rhythm, 
if you push too close in an hour and a half nap to your sort of seven hour nighttime rhythm, then you'll be awake. Yeah. So so if you want the hour and a half, just make sure that you're not too late into it. So again, it's just like that three, two and a half, three-year-old who loses their day sleep uh, or just before they do and they start sleeping later and later in the day. And then I remember for us, it felt like we had a Spanish family where we were all still awake at 10 p.m. I'm thinking, I'd quite like the evening back, really. (laughs) Yes, yes. And another point that's really interesting is the stuff about are people naturally um, larks or, you know, or our owls. Uh, I am definitely an owl. I always have been. My mum would talk about me even at 10 months, happily gurgling away till 10 o'clock at night. I didn't cry. I was quite happy, but I was awake. And I'm still one of those people that will sleep late and wake late if you leave me. And there's some interesting information around um, creatives uh, being late sleepers um there's another chunk of little chunk of information around um a different uh, finding to do with that but it's what's really interesting is you do have you seem to have to a percentage things quite embedded um and then there's also ways that you can shift it so i think flinders university here they um some people in there some young guys designed these amazing glasses that you can use and they have green light because green light is actually the best one for resetting the uh, the kind of melatonin and the, and the pattern of sleep. And so you wear these glasses and you wear them for a very um, a very s- sort of prescriptive program. And what you do is you can either push your sleep cycle later or you can pull your sleep cycle earlier. But it takes, I think, about three months. Wow. So it's quite, you know. And anyone can get these glasses? Yeah, you can buy them. Wow. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, you can buy them on, online. Um, they're about, I don't know, 200 or something. But they're, they're really interesting. They're very much um, based on science and they work. Mm, because a lot of women who have endocrine problems uh-huh. have to sleep earlier I'm, I'm definitely one of those even though I'm a night owl even though I do my best work between 11 and 1 a.m if you yes. left me to yeah. um it stuffs up my hormones because that's uh, that 10 to, to 2 a.m is hormone time um yes. and uh, yeah so it, it's really interesting isn't it because then I feel like I'm going against my nature but my health is telling me to do it for you know you can get very confused Mm-mm. yes um yes but in the end you make sure that you I guess you get the seven hours <laughs> um yeah as opposed to less or more and probably when you when you said why did you take so long I've written down some of the things that um you know we, we were talking about why sleep and and if you don't and if you do so some of the the wonderful things around in general i guess why um i mean you'll if you get a good sleep your mood is better your attention is definitely better your executive function is better your working memory um is better you uh, your quantification skills are better your logical reasoning is better your motor dexterity is better it's why we're clumsy when we're tired but if we then go up to that big level um, then we've got the capacity to, you know, clean the brain better. So you're going to sort of age mentally better, if you like. Um, you you get you don't get as fat because there's a number of things around putting on weight to do with leptin, to do with the you know other kinds of chemicals, formulas. You're also 
um, age faster if you don't sleep because it changes the telomeres on the ends of the DNA strands. So, um, so you're less cre- – and the other thing is you're less creative, of course, because you don't go into that whole wonderful thing. So it's – who would not want to be – I can remember uh, talking one day and saying, so if I could give you something that said you'll be smarter, you'll live longer, you'll be you'll be slimmer, you'll look younger, you'll be more creative, you know. I, oh, yeah, new wonder drug, it's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be just about the best note to end on ever. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? Just yes. sleep. Yes. Oh, we brilliant. take it for granted and we don't do it well enough. Yeah, that's it. And it really is just about bringing it back into the limelight as something to carve out for ourselves. Even if you can't get the naps happening straight away, that seven hours is just, I wear one of these things and so it's not the Wi-Fi transmitting one because I don't like all of that stuff, but um, you have to plug it into your phone and it just keeps me accountable. And so if yeah. I haven't had seven hours sleep three days straight, it makes me go, you know what, tonight is a 10, a 10 p.m. night, there's nothing that can stop me and I just recalibrate myself. And I just think anything that's going to work for the people out there, you know, you've got the information now to just start thinking, okay, what does it look like for me to make progress? Yes. That's right. And the recalibration, you're right, it is to an extent accumulative. Um, it's not that you can sleep for five hours every night during the week and, you know, sleep for 20 hours on the weekend. Um, but all of these things we've just talked about, to be too prescriptive is just as silly as, as not being. So I worked for a, um, quite a long time um, in a power station and I would often work two shifts because I was um, in industrial relations and there were is- if there were issues, my job was pretty full on. And so what I would do is I'd work all night, night shift, and then I'd have to brief day shift and and problem solve. And my head would just be, I would be, because I'd often worked day shift, night shift, and then had to brief day shift. And I'd go into the loo, put my head on my uh, my lap for 10 minutes, go straight to sleep because you do get good at it. Um, and I mean straight to sleep. I, I'm sure I dreamt. Um, and then I'd wake and I'd go, right, and I was I just got up and was able to go and actually run the meeting. And I was a basket case before it. I was just going to fall asleep sitting there. I wasn't concentrating on what anyone was saying anymore because my brain was going, that's enough, I've stopped. <laughs> so, so even that 10 minutes... Um, I am a catnapper anyway, but even that 10 minutes, under 10 minutes starts to get hard to get um, any form of alertness and sort of brainwash, um, as in brain shower. But but between, even if you can't manage anything else, then then try the 10 minutes. Mm, fantastic. So, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant chat. There are a billion other things I want to ask you about the brain, but we'll have to keep it till another time. Yes. Have yourself a wonderful evening and thank you for being a part of the Lotox Club's Sleep Month. You're very welcome. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Low Tox Life podcast. I would love for you to check out the show notes as well, and you can find those at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Now, if there's anything that inspired you from today's episode, I would 
so love to hear and have you share that maybe online. Use the Lotox Life hashtag and I can be found on Twitter or Instagram at A-L-E-X-X underscore Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. Now, if you liked what you heard today and you want to join us again next time, subscribing is a great way to be notified of a new episode. So hit subscribe and I look forward to welcoming you next time. Bye for now. Jack Rabbit FM for your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.